This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. In today's episode, I talk all things legislation and how to create new legal rules to guide tech toward reflecting human values with Brian Beckham, one of the leading lawyers of his generation. Brian Beckham is a Texas super lawyer, a designation that recognizes him as one of the top legal experts and practitioners in his arena. In addition to his work as a lawyer, he is also a computer scientist and philosopher. He created and hosts the popular podcast, Lessons from Leaders with Brian Beckham. He's an honors graduate of the University of Texas School of Law. He's the author of six books and hundreds of articles on a wide variety of topics. He successfully prosecuted many high-profile cases, including the case that emerged in the aftermath of the Somali pirate attack on the Maersk, Alabama, which made headlines around the world, which was made into a Hollywood blockbuster starring Tom Hanks as Captain Phillips. Representing many members of the crew, Brian and his firm took on one of the largest shipping companies in the world, while simultaneously, his investigative efforts ensured that the real story was told. He also famously represented Captain Ren Thomas, who was kidnapped by Nigerian mercenaries while operating off the coast of West Africa. Captain Thomas's story has been featured in national and international media. The case received international attention from the media and maritime shipping companies because of the heroic acts of Captain Thomas during the attack and the hostage situation, and also because of the connections to Boko Haram and corruption in West Africa. In the conversation, we talk about the way that case law formed to treat piracy, that is to say, the practice of attacking and robbing ships at sea, and piracy in our digital age, that is to say, the unauthorized duplication of copyrighted content that is then sold in the gray market. We talk about the possibilities for, and the obstructions to, creating legislation that would stop some of the worst consequences and tendencies of big tech. And Brian makes the case for what law, at its most ethical and generative potential, might do to guide tech toward protecting and elevating human values. Hi, Brian. Hi, Deb. So, Brian, I think that even if people don't know you by name, they know about you uh, via the attack on the ship, the Maersk, Alabama, which was attacked by Somali pirates in an event made famous by the 2009 Hollywood blockbuster film, Captain Phillips, starring Tom Hanks as Captain Phillips. So our audience probably has some context already, but I was hoping you might talk us through the event and the rationale for the lawsuit that you filed and won against Maersk Lines Limited. Happy to do it, Deb. So a lot of people probably have seen the movie, but for those who haven't, about 15 years ago, there was a problem off the coast of East Africa, specifically off the coast of Somalia, Somalia with piracy. And there was a lot of ships, all of them were commercial ships, so no military ships were being attacked by pirates. And a, an American ship, the Maersk, Alabama, was successfully attacked and boarded by four Somali pirates. The captain, a man named Richard Phillips, was taken hostage. This was all over the news. This was worldwide news. Ultimately, Navy SEALs came in assassinated all but one of the hostages and rescued Captain Phillips. He came back. This is when Obama was president. Obama ordered the assassination. Captain 
Phillips came back to the United States and he was a national hero. And what do we do with national heroes? We have Tom Hanks star in movies about him. So anyway, uh, before there was a movie, I get a call from basically the head chef on this. And the head chef said, hey, listen, Captain Phillips has come back to the United States. He's writing a book. We were going to write the book with him. And he basically told us to go jump in the lake. And what people don't realize nationally, this is this, this, this cook talking, this head cook. He said it was all his fault. I said, what? Tell me more. And so we start talking and it ends up that Captain Phillips had ignored and Maris, the company had ignored basically an uh, unlimited number of warnings from security companies, from governments all over the world that were saying, you need to stay 200 nautical miles off the coast of Somalia. Now, why is that important? Why is 200 nautical miles important? Because unlike what most people have in their head, uh, the image of a pirate, these are really not, you know, pirates with ships and parrots on their shoulders wearing eye patches and stuff like that. These are fishermen. And a lot of them were teenagers. And this was, Somalia was a failed country. And so this is how they were making money. And if you stayed more than 200 nautical miles off the coast of Somalia, their fishing vessels were too small to reach these big ships. That was number one. Number two, it turned out, and th these waters were infested, infested with pirates. None of the American ships and none of the sailors had any self-defense mechanisms. So uh, for those of you who have seen the movie, Captain Phillips, there's a scene where like the pirates are coming on and they're shooting these giant water cannons off the ship. Th they didn't have those. They didn't have any firearms, nothing like that. So what, what happened was the company decided to save money and Captain Phillips decided to save money. And so they took a shortcut and that shortcut involved them going twice as close to the coast of Somalia as they were told to go. Not surprisingly, they got attacked, captured. Phillips was taken hostage. Phillips did basically nothing. The movie depicts him as some sort of hero, like he's given himself up for the crew. That never happened. That's completely made up. In fact, there's a picture of the one surviving pirate. One one pirate survived. He's in federal prison in Fort Wayne, Indiana, right now. But he was on. He, he was. He was actually prosecuted criminally for piracy, first piracy prosecution in like 150 years. But he had an eye patch on his eye, like a white bandage, on the news when he was doing the perp walk, and that's because one of my clients stabbed him in the eye with a spoon because they didn't have any other weapons. And so what a lot of people hear when they hear about this case is like, who'd you sue? Do you sue the pirates? Like, how, how do you win that case? And I say, no, I sued the shipping company because the shipping company intentionally put these folks in harm's way with no protection. But here's the punchline. So hard fought case all over the news, Nightline, Dateline, you name it. But Good Morning America came to my house. You know, 10 minutes after they called me, my wife totally freaked out. She was cleaning the house when they showed up. But at the end of the day, the thing I'm most proud about with this case, not only is the fact that we won, there hasn't been a single successful pirate attack off the coast of East Africa since this case. And that's because the shipping companies know if they get too close or if they don't provide some sort of security for their for the men and women that work on their ship, they're going to get sued and they're going to lose. And so that's kind of the short version of the story. It ended up being by far the most famous case I've ever handled. I still get calls today at case, but it, it was an intellectual challenge uh, and a very rewarding case at the end of the day. And I know folks are thinking right now, if you're listening to a show called Technically Human, where the tie-in to ethics and technology and uh, human values comes, 
folks, I promise you it's coming, but I have to uh, spend some of my resources here as a, a literary scholar, kind of marveling at the idea that this all sounds like what we call drolly in literary studies, très postmodern. The idea that there is this kind of dominant narrative out there uh, about what happened in a particular historical incident, it's kind of codified in uh, American culture by way of this blockbuster movie, and you're kind of telling a counter narrative or a postmodern flip of an archival anchor, so to speak, to use the maritime terms of it. And I wonder how this has made you think about the kind of iconic, canonized stories or narratives in our culture. How does this incident in which you were approached by people who said, well, wait a second, this is a canonized version. This is the version that popular culture has kind of entrenched in its society. That's not true. Has that made you think differently about the iconography or the major historical incidents around which our cultural mythologies are pivoted? Do you think differently about how we understand our own grounding mythologies or the maybe dominant stories in the headlines? Yeah, that's a deep question, Deb, a very, very deep question. And I I would go so far as to say that not only are these narratives, stories important, but that's the only way we can think, like the way we think about ourselves and the way we think about others and the way we make sense of the world is through these narratives and these stories we tell in our mind. And there's all sorts of famous psychologists and scientists. I, you know, I don't know if you're a Jungian or what you are, but uh, for the listeners who are paying attention, stories are everything. And in my job, and and frankly, in a lot of jobs, at the end of the day, when you scrape away all of the superficial stuff, what do you really do? And you're telling stories. If you're marketing, you're telling stories. If you're trying to get some piece of business as an accountant or a banker, what are you doing? You're telling stories. As a lawyer, you're telling stories. And, you know, when this case came up, there was this dominant narrative uh, of Captain Phillips being a hero. And and layer on top of that, Deb, the fact that Tom Hanks was going to be telling that story. And we have a, a, we have a narrative in this country about Tom Hanks, like Tom Hanks being a great guy. And so I went, when I found out the case had already been filed, didn't know there was going to be a movie. And I found out there was going to be a Hollywood movie starring Tom Hanks. And I immediately went to the court and said, we need to move things up, Judge, because everybody loves Tom Hanks and these jurors are going to be influenced by this narrative and it's going to prejudice my client. And of course, the defense, so I was worried about the narrative. Uh, I was worried about the story. And of course, the defense lawyer, no, 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 What we, we, we can wait. It's no, no big deal. They thought they were doing a good job for their client. It turns out that they, by having another three years of this case, they they literally ended up giving me about $3 million free publicity. But it was a hard challenge to take on the Hollywood narrative. And one of the things that I, I really like about this case is we were successfully able to do that. So, for example, when you Google Captain Phillips now or what's the true story about Captain Phillips, our narrative is out there. Like We flipped the narrative. And I think that that's something uh, you, you do all the time. But like I said at the very beginning of the answer, uh, my belief from a from a psychological standpoint or a, a neuroscientific standpoint is it is not even possible for a human being to think or to relate to the world other than through stories. I mean, that we tell our story, we tell ourselves stories about each other. We tell ourselves stories about ourselves. 
all the time. Like that is how we think. And so I, I don't think there's anything more important than stories anywhere in the world. I, you know, I tell people, if you want to give a good speech, there's really one way to do it. Tell stories. That's it. I want to circle back to this case in a second, but what you're saying makes me think about a piece that I'm working on right now that looks at the story that many of us are telling in the context of our technological uh, ecosystem about our tech leaders as heroes, right? Or uh, more properly, as I call them, hero magicians. And the story that we tell ourselves about these tech figures, be they Elon Musk or Mark Benioff or Mark Zuckerberg or Steve Jobs, is that these are kind of hagiographic figures, very haloed, capable of pulling off extraordinary, powerful magic tricks. And that because of that, they they tend to be the persons and the archetypes that are that our culture very much valorizes. And if we look at the mythology, I like to use the idea of the magician because the magician is this kind of lone wolf figure who doesn't reveal his tricks. It's always almost always a he who has this powerful capability to enchant us using powerful spells and not, of course, ever exposing trade secrets, right? That That's the kind of mythology of this particular hero. And I think that one of the outcomes of that is that we don't kind of challenge the business practices behind these magic tricks. And we don't require transparency, right, to explain these magic tricks. So I'm wondering whether the comments that you just made about the stories that we tell, you see having any bearing on how we think about metabolize and indeed legislate or regulate technological products and, and their makers. Yeah. Be before I talk about that, it, maybe it might be appropriate for me to briefly give your listeners my bona fides or bona fides, as we say in Texas. And so before I was a lawyer, I was a computer scientist and a philosopher. I was in uh, the computer science department at Texas A&M in the early 1990s. I had an email address before anybody else. Of course, I tell everybody it was useless because there was nobody to email. But the point is, I, I was I was in college when the internet was invented by the, not invented, but released to the public by the federal government. The internet explorer that you see was not created by Bill Gates, okay? the uh, By the way, the, the point-and-click mouse and the Windows operating system was also not created by Bill Gates. Those were basically taken or borrowed from other companies. Steve Jobs didn't invent the computer. He didn't program the Apple II. Elon Musk has no degrees in science, physics. And, and so the point is, is I've seen this development over time. And the, you're right about the idea that we mythologize these tech titans. So we, for example, and, and I'm, by the way, a lot of these people are great people, I'm sure. I'm not fussing at them personally. I'm just making some observations about the way our society, like you said, tends to kind of lionize these folks. So Bill Gates came from a wealthy household. He got into Harvard. He dropped out of Harvard. He got together with Paul Allen, and he basically cobbled together a bunch of different operating systems. He purchased from the government Internet Explorer, and they monopolized the product so nobody else could compete. That's not a, that, that's not a, a technology accomplishment. That's a business accomplishment. Bill Gates was a, was a great bare-knuckle businessman. But that doesn't necessarily mean the technology is any better. As a matter of fact, Microsoft technology historically has been terrible, like at least in terms of the robustness and the security of the codes, whether it works or not. It, it's, it's an inferior product from a purely technical standpoint. But from a business standpoint, they locked up the market share so well 
that that's all anybody knew for 25 years. Steve Jobs, same story. Steve Jobs has no technical chops at all. Uh, he also was, by all accounts, kind of a kind of a shitty person a little bit. And but what he what he was good at was he had good taste and he was a good salesman. Steve Wozniak is is the tech guy that built all his product. Mark Zuckerberg, I'm sure Mark is a great guy when you meet him in person. But when did we get to the point in our society where we decided that somebody who built literally, literally built a product so he could meet chicks has some sort of uh, extra knowledge about what billions of what news billions of people in the world see? Like, when do we get to that point? When do we get to the point where we felt like an emotionally stunted, probably psychologically damaged person like Elon Musk gets to buy Twitter and dictate to you and me? what everybody else gets to see. And the, the point I've been trying to make about these issues for such a long time is they're the tech, just because you are the head of a tech company doesn't mean you know a thing about ethics or morality. In fact, if you have a profit incentive, you, you have bad incentives to do what's good for everybody else. Like I would argue on balance that social media has been bad for the world. I would argue that it's bad that a small group of five or ten people literally get to dictate what you and I see in our feeds. Like, and, and we never think about it that. So the way we normally think about it is like Elon Musk built these Tesla. And by the way, I've driven a Tesla for 10 years. They're great cars. I love the cars. But you know what Elon Musk did to design that car? He did nothing. Matter of fact, the company already existed. He just bought it. And then he hired a bunch of good engineers and made the company do good. But again, that's not a, that's not an ethics thing. And that's not even a tech thing. That's a business thing. So Elon's a great businessman. But just because you're a great businessman doesn't mean you're a great person. Just because you own a tech company doesn't mean you have any special insight in how technology should be used from an ethical standpoint. And so I would argue that the problems that we're facing right now vis-a-vis -vis technology aren't really technology questions for the most part. They're ethics questions. And ethics, by the way, I think everybody thinks they have good ethics and everybody can talk about it. And that's true to a certain extent. But there's, there is some training involved. Like if, if you're not familiar with utilitarianism or consequentialism or Kantianism, or existentialism, or the American history of pragmatism, or Edmund Wilson, if you don't know who any of these people are, I don't really want to hear what you have to say about ethics because you haven't thought about it. Uh, if you haven't thought about some of the famous questions in ethics, like would you rather be smart, know all the bad things, or dumb and not and dumb and happy and not know, like if you haven't thought about these basic questions, then you you probably <laughs> shouldn't be telling other people what's good and what's good and bad. I mean, when, when Elon Musk gets up on Twitter and starts telling people about pol his pol political beliefs, I I'm sitting there going, why does anybody care what he thinks? Like, what has Elon Musk done to show any expertise in anything other than being a visionary businessman? And he gets all my respect as far as that's concerned. But, but in every other, in every other field, I, you know, I always ask myself, like, why, why do we listen to these people? What special, like Bill Gates, if you look at Bill Gates, here's another example. 
physically he looks very unhealthy. He looks like he's never touched a weight in his life. He's fat or soft. And yet he's telling everybody, we need to stop eating meat. We, you know, here's all the health things we need to do. Like, I, I just don't know. Why would we listen to Bill Gates about a, a topic which he obviously knows nothing about? And so I think the ethics and technology thing is maybe one of the most important issues facing our country today and our world, if not the most important issue. Because if we get to a point where there is no joint reality like that, if you and I can't agree on the basic facts of reality, which is kind of where we're heading, that's an existential problem. Well, I guess my instinct is to ask you to answer your own question, which is, when did we start lionizing these figures? Why do we think that they know the answers to these deep ethical questions, given uh, what we know about them and what their training and what their public pronouncements seem to suggest that they know. You know, one argument that I found very compelling uh, that I've that I've been thinking about for a while. Curious what you think, but then I really want to do. I do want to hear you answer that that question that you yourself posed. Um, is that the logic of engineering is the logic of how do we make X more efficient, or how do we allow X to create infinite growth, which is conveniently the logic of capitalism. And so these technologies, which reproduce the same logic of how one in our culture, in our economy, earns money, are very well equipped to do exactly that, which is earn money. And because our uh, society is one that valorizes money, we tend to conflate wealth with wisdom. So that's one of my provisional answers to those questions. Of course, efficiency is an important value, but it's only one of many other values. And another society that maybe did not value efficiency as a mode by which to create wealth might consider other values that might be orthogonal to something like efficiency, like love or care, um, which actually usually uh, require sacrificing some efficiency. I joke with my undergraduates that I asked them, how many of you have a you know, lover, boyfriend, girlfriend, some that raised their hands? I said, how many of the rest of you would like one? They say, you know, everybody raised their hand. And then how many of you would like your lover to love you efficiently? And <laughs> they sort of all, you know, giggle because nobody wants their lover to be efficient with them, yeah. um, which is, you know, touching on something we've been know very deeply, which is that something like love or care, which is a, a very important value to us individually, is just sometimes not compatible with efficiency, right? So again, I go back to the question you asked, when did we start lionizing these people? When did they become our Captain Phillips? When did they start getting played by Tom Hanks, right? Why do we presume that these figures have this kind of exceptional uh, ability to inform us on issues of ethics or issues of values or issues of prophecy about what it means to be a human being and where we should go as human beings? Yeah, I, you said something there when you were talking that I think is absolutely 100% on point. I could not agree with you more. And you said money doesn't equal wisdom. But we've gotten that confused in this country. And I don't think this is a new thing, by the way, Deb. I think for a long time. So let's start with the with kind of the fundamental axioms. We have a capitalistic free market country. And by the way, there is nothing in the Constitution of the United States, it says we have to have capitalism in America. It doesn't say the word capitalism anywhere. It doesn't talk about capitalism. We, we could have a lot of different forms of ways of organizing our economic arrangements. So, And there's nothing that says we have to have free markets either. But 
because we're a capitalist country and a, and a free market country, allegedly, and you know, I would consider myself a free market person and somewhat of a capitalist, but what we have is not free markets and capitalism. What we have is free market, quote, free markets where all the wealthy countries try to monopolize their product or service to, to the detriment of everybody else. And that is the opposite of a free market country. And it's been going on like that forever. John D. Rockefeller, whose name is on every single building in the country, it seems like, who is always held up as this paragon of free market values, was publicly a monopolist. Like he told people repeatedly that he thought a free market in the oil industry was bad because prices would be too volatile. So, and Bill Gates was the same way. When Bill Gates had Internet Explorer baked into the Windows operating system and made it impossible to remove and made it impossible to use anybody else's browser. He wasn't doing that to make the product better for everybody else. He was doing that to screw all his competitors. So when I say we have a free market and a capitalist country, that's not really true, but that's kind of the mind frame. And I think what, what what's happened, and this has been going on forever, is just like you said, we conflate money with wisdom and money with morality. Like we think if somebody makes a billion dollars, they must be smarter than everybody else, or they must be, they must work harder than everybody else, or they must be better than everybody else. And I'm telling you, there's not a billionaire in this country that works any harder than a Navy SEAL. It's about priorities. And the only thing that it tells me if you have a lot of money is either that you were lucky or that you're good at making money. It doesn't tell me a single thing other than that. But in this country, we think because Elon Musk grew up the son of a rich diamond heir and moved to the right country at the right time in the right place and met the right people, that he's some sort of paragon of wisdom or morality. And I would argue based on what we've seen from Elon over the last two years that he is clearly like patently obviously not somebody to follow from a wisdom standpoint or from a a morality standpoint I mean think about why would a 51 year old billionaire who's running four companies act like a 12 year old girl on social media I mean like why would you follow that guy that shows a tremendous lack of judgment and you know you could have example after example in the tech community of wealthy people making horrible decisions so so the point is i think this has been something in our country that has been going on for a very very long time we just see it now because we have ubiquitous instant communication through all these screens but but the point that i'm trying to drive home is that hey if it's a tech question, I want to hear what the engineers have to say. I'm an engineer myself. I believe the engineer should be addressing tech questions. But I don't want this engineer to tell me whether allowing a certain amount of Russian disinformation on Facebook is good or bad because that engineer has nothing to offer at all unless he's got some sort of training or he's thought about it or she's thought about it. And again, these are these are not technology questions that we have right now. These are basic fundamental questions of what we prioritize as a country and what we don't. I'll give you another quick example, Deb. And and this is where the my lawyer training comes in. Corporations in the United States of America are required by law 
to maximize shareholder profit. Okay, there are laws that were written by human beings that mandate that being the first priority of corporations. So not only do corporations have to put money first, they are required by law to put money first. It doesn't have to be that way. Like nobody said that we have to prioritize, like for example, you could have a corporation that prioritizes not only the good of the shareholders, but the good of the community that's operating. You, you could, you could, yeah, you could create different incentives, but we've chosen not to do that. And so that's okay. And I would actually, there's actually a lot of good philosophy and science or whatever you want to call it behind the idea that when people are competing in their own self-interest, the end result tends to be a little better sometimes. And, and that's fine. So, I, you know, again, I'm not anti-corporation by any stretch. I just... I'm trying to tell people we have to keep in mind what we're dealing with here. Like corporations are not human beings. The Supreme Court a while back said corporations are human beings. They can give money to political candidates just like human beings. And I'm telling you, that is absolutely insane. <laughs> There's a great article, I think it's in The Atlantic, about how the notion that corporations are human beings was actually started like in the 1950s by a bunch of right-wing activists who thought, that they could convince the courts to do this and so they could have to make more money and et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, the point is the entire narrative is false. Like it's never been true that corporations were human beings. They're not human beings. They're pieces of paper. They're fictions. When you say IBM can give money and your local police officer can give money to political candidates and everybody has the same voice, I mean, we all know that's not true. I mean, we all know that's not true. It, it, it's staring us right in the face. And so I, that's kind of, a, I guess, a long way of saying that this has been an issue in our country for a very long time, and that is confusing wealth and success in business with being a good person. And sometimes you can have, sometimes you have both, but oftentimes you don't. Yeah. There's so much that I could unpack from this, but if I could follow you down, just, just one, I think, avenue of thought that ties back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, this frame of magical thinking or the technologists as magicians that I've been kind of turning over in my mind carries, I think, one important implication, at least for the argument that you are making, which is that it's a very convenient logic because it puts the technologist as a kind of elevated figure who alone is capable of understanding the technology to the point of being able to regulate it. And this is something that I've been thinking about for uh, quite some time, because there's an argument that has become very familiar to the point of being kind of, kind of granted that Congress people or even legal experts who are not trained as technologists themselves are ill-equipped or incompetent to govern or to regulate big tech. And, you know, I'm thinking, for example, of the 2023 ruling over Google's right to immunity under Section 230 in a case involving a suit by a victim of an ISIS attack in 2015. And in that case, the filers of the suit argued that Google shared liability for this death as a result of recommending ISIS videos to interested users, in including the people who ended up attacking and killing the individual whose family filed suit. And in that case, which went to the Supreme Court, Justice Alana Kagan famously said, we're a court. We really don't know about these things. You know, we're not the greatest experts on the internet. <laughs> and the comments seem to assume that technical expertise in the functions of the internet would override or would serve as a 
a, even a requirement for sound legal judgment on this case. But of course, I think that this is a fallacy. And, and this is something that the tech industry buys into, right? You think of the very famous moment where I believe it was uh, Senator Blumenthal made some comment about Finsta, which was ridiculed over the internet because he showed himself to be not familiar with the terminology of the internet. I mean, the snark about this abounded. But of course, Congress people regularly create legislation that uh, supervises and controls multiple areas of technological business production outside of what we might call big tech or digital technologies. For example, Congress regularly creates legislation to govern public safety in the auto industry. I suspect, although I have not done my research on this, that few Congress people are former auto mechanics and would know <laughs> the specific terminology of car engines or possess specific auto expertise. <laughs> Yet for decades, Congress has been able to pass legislation that car companies must follow in order to ensure public safety, like safety belts or pollution laws, without a large public denouncement of the fact that uh, the people making this legislation are not themselves auto mechanics. Uh, to my understanding, no no demand for representation uh, by auto mechanic professionals in Congress. I'm being, you know, <laughs> uh, ironic here, little cynical, but it would be doubtful to me that a member of Congress would be censured for not knowing the insider language of dealerships yeah. in the same way that Senator Blumenthal was ridiculed for not knowing the terminology of Instagram. I'm not sure that, you know, to go back to uh, the Somali pirates case that you're talking about, being a cap of a boat or the architect of a boat puts you in a good position to be an expert on piracy law. Although I think, as your work shows, it's important to understand how captains and crews function on boats, to understand and know their story, to hear the testimony of what they're thinking about and how to represent them and create legal structures to protect them. So I'm curious from you how you think about the argument that technologists, and, and often it's argued by technologists, technologists alone are competent to regulate or govern tech. Is there some sort of reasonability to this? Or is it putting, so to speak, the pirates in charge of piracy law? No, there's none. No, there, 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 there is no, no, that, no. Not only are technologists not the only people that can do this, I would argue that they're the worst possible people to make these decisions. And that's because they have bad incentives. They, they've got these financial dis incentives that color and cloud every single thing they do. And moreover, just because you're good at programming and Objective C++, I'm dating myself, what do they use now, Swift or something with iOS? Just because you can write a computer program doesn't mean you know jack shit, sorry about my language, about ethics or morality. It's just that simple. And, you know, you talk about Section 230. I think that is a perfect example of how incentives in this country are completely jacked up. So basically, here's how it's worked historically. Historically, the right wing supports businesses and they want tax cuts and things like that. And one of the things that that often entails is passing special laws to protect companies from lawsuits. So the tech companies got it. You, you, you referenced it, Section 230. They, ha they had a special law passed just for them that immunizes them from basically any lawsuits. And it was the Republicans who got that done. And why did they get it done? Follow the money is because then they get campaign contributions from these big companies. But what's been interesting to me lately, Deb, is all of a sudden, a lot of these Republicans are saying, hold on, this was a bad idea. Like we wanna get rid of Section 230 now because now these social media th companies are doing things that we don't like. and. The problem is, is 
the way our laws are passed right now, it's basically, you know, goes to the highest bidder. And so Section 230 was a bad idea to begin with. I, I mean, the underlying notion behind Section 230 is we wanted a robust technology sector. We wanted to encourage technological development and stuff. But the problem is these lawmakers will often put stuff in these bills that have nothing to do with that. So the fact that you can't sue Facebook, it, it has nothing to do with whether Facebook is, it, it's just a purely self-protection mechanism for Facebook. The analogy that I used to use, that I used to use and kind of like, Deb, and maybe you can tell me if you like this or if you think there's some holes is, imagine that for the last month in my living room, there were 10 people that would come over every evening for two hours and plot a mass murder in Houston. And I knew they were doing it. And I let them do it. And I provided them the place to do it. Hell, I even gave them water and snacks. And then they went out and did it. And somebody says, well, Beckham, what the hell? Why didn't you say it? You knew these, they just killed a hundred school kids. You knew they were plotting this for two months in your living room. And you didn't do anything? You're crazy. We hate you. You're a terrible person. You're going to get sued. You're going to lose. Well, in my analogy, that is Facebook or the social media companies. They provide the place. They provide the software. They provide the reasons. They, they provide basically safe haven for people to do whatever they want to do. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden they say, but uh, not our fault. We didn't, we didn't participate in it. And I just think that's a bad, that's a, again, those are bad incentives. Like if Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all these other companies knew that they would get sued for hosting people that were going to commit mass murder or terrorist or child pornographers, do you think they would do a better job at policing that? Of course they would, because now you're talking about what they really care about which is non-morality and ethics, it's money. That's how you speak the language of these companies, is through money. But the problem, again, is the incentives are really jacked up. So, you know, for, for example, uh, if you're the head of Facebook and you know by law that you have to maximize shareholder profit, you're going to try to get these laws passed because that's your job, right? Let's do Mr. Uber capitalist Elon Musk, okay? Mr. Free Market Guy hates socialism, blah, 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 blah. Oh, wait a second. The United States government is going to give me billions of dollars in subsidies to build cars? Give me, give me, give me, give me, right? Like, it's socialism for me, but not for thee. You know, I, I posted this thing on Facebook. I try not to do this on Facebook anymore, but when the student loan forgiveness thing was coming out, I posted this thing. I said, I cannot believe that we're thinking about helping people with loan forgiveness, they shouldn't have taken out these loans. I mean, this is totally a response. They took out all these loans. They need to pay back these. I mean, the next thing you know, Deb, we're going to be bailing out banks, <laughs> insurance yeah. companies. Yeah. Where does it stop? And and the funny thing is, about half the people that follow me didn't get the facetiousness of it. <laughs> They're like, yeah, where does it stop? <laughs> but the point is, the point is, is like, and and look, if, if if you want to be, if you want to be truly descriptive about what kind of system we have in America today, and it's always been this way, it's a blend. We've always had a blend. So, for example, I'm a military brat. 
I have five members of my family that served in the military. I did four years in the Corps of Cadets myself. My oldest son is in the Corps of Cadets right now. My younger son will be next year. The military is the biggest socialist organization ever. And it's funny because typically military people don't consider themselves to be socialists. But what is the military about? The military is not about making it's about subsuming. It's, it's about a collective effort to protect the country. You, you, you subsume yourself to the collective good. You sacrifice maybe making money in order to protect the country for a greater good. That's socialism. That, that is socialism. The military is not a free market thing. I'm glad it's not. So we've always had a little bit of a blend, but we have a hard time talking about this a little bit. Primarily because, at least lately, we've had a 92-year-old Australian yellow journalist <laughs> who makes money telling half the country, no, seriously, yeah. telling half the country what they should think. Like, like that, think about that. Like, there's somebody from Australia, when there's nothing wrong with Australia, but uh, the point is, is this is not somebody who, who's a United States citizen or anything like that. And this person for the last 25 years has dictated what half the country thinks and believes about politics. That's nuts. I mean, that is insane. Like the, the way we let people manipulate us is crazy. And, you know, I think the good news about this is I think a lot of people are catching on to this. I, I don't think there's very many people who watch Fox News anymore or Breitbart and think they're getting anything but pure fucking pop propaganda. Part, pardon me for my language. Most people realize that. The people that don't realize that, uh, <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. I'm not too worried about those people because I'm, I'm not even sure that they can tie their shoes and chew gum at the same time. They're, you know, Neil Stevenson is one of my favorite authors. You probably heard of Neil Stevenson. He's a sci-fi writer. He wrote a book called Fail, uh, dodge. It, basically, it's about uploading your consciousness into a computer. But at the first part of the book, there's a really cool part of the book, Deb, that talks about how essentially in his world, a large part of the population uh, has no free agency because all they do is they sit there and stare at computers that are programming them. It's kind of like the scene in WALL-E where everybody's up in the spaceship and they're all fat and they look different. And there's, they, they have no more free agency. There's no more consciousness. And I, and I would argue that we, we're kind of at that point now. There's a certain segment of our population that has no free agency because all the thoughts that they have are put there by other people, mainly through social media and stuff. And and and, and it's an issue for, for a lot of people. And, and I think it's an ongoing problem. It's something, frankly, that I'm worried about with myself. Like, I, I intentionally read hard copy books now just so I can have some time away from the screens. Like, you know, it used to be that when I would see people looking at their phones, I'd be like, oh, man, the <clears throat> that's information is flowing from their brain into their phone. Now I sit there and see that, and I'm like, that phone is programming that human being. You know, <laughs> like, so I see it in the reverse order. No, there's so much that I could pick up from there, but I feel like I want to take advantage of having a, a legal expert and such a strong legal expert in thinking about the nature of institutions and, and technology. And to pull one thread out from what you were saying in the earlier part of your response to my question, I think, you know, if I'm looking at the uh, practices of, for example, making a case against 
the idea that technology companies and specifically digital technology companies are responsible for removing content that leads to violence on their platforms. The analogy that you're making to your own culpability as aiding, abetting, for example, terrorists or somebody plotting a murder sitting in your living room. If I'm to make like a good faith argument in service of those companies, you know, a lot of them will make the case that this information is difficult for them to track and to assess in terms of what flows on the side of free speech and what flows on the side of violence. Now, one of my mentors, Yael Eisenstadt, makes the case in referencing January 6th that if you look at, for example, how Ashley Babbitt, the insurrectionist who ended up getting killed at the Capitol, ended up getting to the Capitol in the first place, she says, you know, Ashley Babbitt didn't have Facebook tell her to go to the Capitol, but rather Ashley Babbitt was seeing volatile inflammatory rhetoric come into her feed because of algorithmic decisions to prioritize outrageous content uh, made by Facebook in service of its business decision to keep eyeballs on its platform as long as possible. And then in service of the business decision to keep eyeballs on its platform as long as possible, Ashley Babbitt was connected to Facebook groups or uh, had Facebook groups suggested to her with other people who were outraged and planning to go to the Capitol. And then because Facebook has a business decision that wants to keep people on its platform as long as possible in order to generate profit, Ashley Babbitt was put into those very volatile inflammatory groups, which planned then to go to the Capitol, right, as insurrectionists. She says, you follow the trail to that, then piece together, you get to Ashley Babbitt at the Capitol. And I think that the case for me is really interesting because on the one hand, if you look in terms of the analogy that you give, people sitting in your living room planning a terrorist attack or a violent act activity, right? You have a clear case of an individual actor, in this case, theoretically you, helping, aiding, abetting, providing a place for that. In the context of something like Facebook, what I think works in their service is what we might call distributed responsibility or sometimes what I call the Eichmann problem, meaning that these are not individuals who all together have the kind of knowledge about what's going on in the comprehensive way that you as an individual consciousness as a person would, but rather engineers and CEOs and people with business degrees running marketing and people who are part of uh, business campaigns all individually making decisions as part of a larger bureaucratic organizational structure. And that kind of distributed responsibility is very difficult, I would say, for our legal system to understand and to accommodate. Yeah. There's no individual, as the analogy would put it, for you yeah. with the host of this living room party as an individual to hold individually responsible. So I'm wondering how you think about this, what I call Eichmann problem. I say Eichmann problem, referencing, of course, Adolf Eichmann, the Nazi bureaucrat who was responsible for organizing the deportations that led to the murders at concentration camps of millions and millions and millions of Jews who never himself picked up uh, any weapon, never himself really ever was proven to have killed an individual person, and yet through a distributed process ended up organizing this kind of distributed responsibility architecture. Again, I'm not sure our legal systems are set up to accommodate this. And I'm wondering how you think about that. Do we need legal systems, for example? You know, you you have a you have a beautiful mind. Like you, the, a lot of the things that you're talking about, <laughs> I mean, I, they're, they're right on the bullseye of what I've been thinking about. So have you ever heard has anybody ever said to you, it's just business? Have you ever heard that phrase before? Sure, sure. Okay. When people say that to me, 
I know they're about to do something immoral or something that they don't feel is right. Anytime somebody says, look, it's just business, I'm sorry, it's just business, it's because they did something immoral. And I think there's, you talk about the Eichmann problem and distributed responsibility. The problem lies with the corporate form itself. So like limited liability company, the whole purpose of that is to relieve people of responsibility. The entire purpose of having a corporation is to relieve individuals of responsibility. So for example, there's a, there's a famous case, and this has happened so many times it would make people's heads spin, but there was a, there was a, basically a vehicle. I think it was designed by General I don't think it was the Pinto, but it, it was, it had a very bad defect like the Pinto. And so f- for people that don't, this was back in the seventies, a Pinto was a car built by Ford Motor Company where the gas, the gas tank was positioned to where if somebody hit it like five miles an hour, it burst into flames and burned the occupants a lot. Ford knew about that before they sold the Pinto, their document, internal documents where they talk about repositioning the gas tank and it would cost like. 50 cents to do it and it would save 200 lives if they didn't do it they would make a a little bit extra money but 200 families would burn excruciatingly alive in a five mile an hour rear end crash there was a similar case with general motors it was another like i think it was a seat component where if you got hit on the rear 10 miles an hour the seat back would collapse send you shooting into the back and paralyzing you for life, or if there was somebody behind you, would kill them. Super easy fix, super cheap. And there's actually studies that there was a couple engineers, General Motors, that knew all of this stuff and said, screw it, we're just going to let people die because we don't want to affect our bottom line. And when you hear that, you're like, how could somebody make that kind of decision? Like, how is it possible for any anybody other than a sadist or just a real, and by all accounts, the engineers making these decisions, they're not terrible people. They're family people. They want to do, they want to go to work, do a good job and come back. So these are not like mass murderers or serial killers. These are normal people. So the question is how do normal people do this? Like, I think this is maybe adjacent to the Eichmann problem. How did normal Germans let some of the atrocities go by? And I think, Deb, you put your finger right on it. It's distributed responsibility, or maybe the better way to put it is distributed lack of responsibility. So I know if I'm in a corporation, I can make recommendations and I can never get sued. Nobody's going to blame me if 200 people burn alive. It's, it's, it's a, it's a structural thing. And we have set it up this way on purpose. And so, and you know, you could have example after example, but how many times Deb, have you seen some CEO gets hired to go take over some company. Like I'm thinking of maybe Ken Chanel at American Express. The company's worth, you know, $50 billion when he takes over and then he runs it into the ground in two years, he gets fired and he makes a hundred million dollars for running the company into the ground. What are we talking about? The, the AIG CEO and the banking CEO, you know how many banking CEOs were fired after they torched our economy and required all the taxpayers to chip in and pay them off to zero. They all got their bonuses too. And that's a structural thing. I mean, that is a structural thing. The system is set up for people to avoid a feeling of personal responsibility. And it doesn't have to be that way. You could say, 
for example, in a corporation, if you make a decision that results in 200 people burning alive, you can be held personally responsible for that. When, when Sarbay's, you know, now we're trying to overturn this, but when the economy went to doo-doo because of all these horrible decisions all these bankers and insurance companies had made, there was a law passed that basically said from now on the CEO and the CFO have to certify the accuracy of the financial results. And if they don't, they could be personally liable. Good idea. Good start. Of course, what are we doing now? Weakening that, right? Why are we weakening? Why wouldn't we want the CEO to say these are accurate? Why wouldn't we want the CFO to say, I, I certify under the potential punishment of me being sued that these are accurate? Why, why wouldn't we want that? <laughs> I'll tell you who doesn't want that. People who don't want to do it the right way. So, and, and it's not, by the way, it's not just in the context of corporations. It's also in the context of academia. It's in the context of any large bureaucracy. It's in the context of the government. These large groups tend to diffuse. No, nobody, if everybody is responsible, if you're not responsible, you're going to make different decisions than if you are. Right. And, you know, when I started thinking and writing and uh, talking about ethics and technology, I started off talking about the products and I started off talking about the harms caused by the products. And over the four years that I've been doing this show, um, I've increasingly moved away from talking about the products, which cause their own harms, and more and more talking about if we're going to solve the, the problems caused by the products, we might look less at the products themselves and more at the financial structures and profit motivations that are moving the products to be developed in in certain ways. Yeah. And so, you know, I I try to convince people who are concerned, for example, about misinformation or disinformation or concerned about democracy as a result of what you described in terms of our social media platforms, removal of what we might call a, a, a kind of shared consensual reality um, by way of, you know, filter bubbles or by way of creating uh, communities where we can all in, inhabit our own personal factual orbits. And I guess my question for you is, given that it seems like we're on the same page about some of this, and that is to say, holding responsible the structure of corporations, the financial profit motives, the business decisions, and the drives and incentives that lead to certain business decisions, what kinds of legal issues do you think are currently critical to protecting consumers and citizens against the harms of technology? What regulation and legislation, and again, this does not have to be legislation about the actual products, right? We're talking about um, legislation of things like corporations or changes to the structure of how the law treats corporate entities. What kinds of legislative or regulatory recommendations do you have? What what current cases do you think maybe that are right now being decided have the potential to change the landscape of tech regulation and tech practices? I'm going to get into a topic that I think is going to excite you a little bit. But before I do that, let's make sure we use the right language. Okay. And this is something that has bothered me for a long time. The word regulation has all sorts of bad connotations, mainly because certain interest groups have poisoned that word. And so I like to use a different word. I like to use the word rules. What are the rules we are going to use to govern ourselves by? So, and like in the context of there is no such thing as a free market without so you have to, you have to have rules where the whole thing is chaos. And and by the way, not only do you have to have rules, but you also have to have pe people to enforce those. 
And that's typically the legal system. Uh, at least that's the most effective way. But the, the, the issue, I've been a technophile. That means I'm really into technology, right? Instead of what I, I I've been very into technology. I've th thought it's been a force for good since I've been basically a conscious person. And, and I was more so when I was studying computer science. I've been interested in computer science forever. Lately, I, and maybe it's me getting old, turning 50 or whatever, I'm turning into a cranky old man, but chat GPT, large language models, AI in general, I've never been more excited about a technology while at the same time being scared to death. But like, I, you know, there's all sorts of philosophical issues that surround I call them large language models because I think ChatGPT, that's like saying the Ford Mustang. It, it's really, uh, th these are language models. These mimic human languages and there's different types of ChatGPT. So trying to be as accurate as I can, these large language models that imitate human communication are already starting to change hu human communication. So, you know, an analogy that I would draw is like the Waze traffic app that helps you avoid traffic has actually rerouted traffic patterns. And so it's it, instead of creating, you know, helping people get from one place to the other, it's actually made it worse for other people. And these are like unintended consequences that the technologists don't think about because all the technologists want to do is put 50 buttons on the remote control to tell you how smart they are. They don't want to think through the potential consequences. And there are so many potential consequences with interacting with something that's not human and thinking it is. I mean, that that's the Turing test. The, the basic idea behind the Turing test is you interact with something and you can't tell it's human. There's more robustness to that, but there are people that will say some of these language models have already blown past the Turing test. I, I personally don't believe that, but I don't think it matters. What I think matters is most people, not most people, a lot of people don't know if they're dealing with something intelligent or not. You know, I'm, I read Ulysses by James Joyce this year, one of the hardest books I've ever read in my life. And I was thinking about now if ChatGPT tried to write a book like Ulysses, who's going to know whether it's good or not? Because what we're going to do is the language that the large language models use, we're going to start adopting that in our minds as, as our language. And, and, and all these large language models do, I, I actually... I've taken a couple courses about building these from scratch just because I want to understand how, how they worked underneath the hood. They're just prediction devices with a little bit of statistics and calculus and then a little bit of recursion. So for example, just to use a real simple example, everybody's heard the word, everybody's heard about tokens and all tokens are tokens could be a letter. Tokens could be a word. Tokens could be a group of words, but they take a token. So let's say a token is the word the in the English language. And then there's a column next to it. The cat has a 2.2% probability of appearing next. The gorilla has a, you know, zzz, zzz. and then they just recursively program this and they give it some context. And so it sounds human, but anybody that thinks that there's anything going on consciously under the hood is fooling themselves. All it is, is math. It's just math. It's just predictive math. But that's not what it looks like. I mean, it looks like magic to people when they use it. There are people falling in love with these things. There, there are people that don't know if, when they're interacting with them or not. You know, I'm a super big computer scientist guy and it wasn't until, and I, I'm a big YouTube fan. I like to watch all sorts of different 
things on YouTube that I'm interested in. And it wasn't until a couple of years ago, I'd be watching YouTube and I'd be like, wait a second, that narrator's a computer. That's not a human being. And I'm sitting there telling myself like, how many people realize that? When are we going to get the point where there, there is no distinction? Like you can't tell any difference. And so the, the, the AI safety is a huge legal deal in my mind. It, it is a big deal. And, and you see a lot of the companies, the tech companies are encouraging regulation. You know why they're doing that? Because they know it's coming anyway and they want to get in front of it. They're not doing that because they're all of a sudden altruistic and want to help humanity. They want it, they want it, they want, they know it's coming. And so they want to manipulate the regulations or the rules that they, the rules that they work under to their benefit. And they'll end up being so diluted. They won't have any effect at all. So AI to me, I mean, AI to me calls into question what it means to be human. I mean, and is there any bigger question? I mean, I don't know if there's a more important, like, what does it mean to be a conscious entity? What does it mean to have free agency? What does it mean? What is consciousness, right? Like, and then we get into the distinction between, we already have tons of artificial intelligence. Your thermometer is artificially intelligent, but in a very narrow band. What happens when we get to artificial general intelligence? What is that? How do we know if something's conscious? Does it matter if it's conscious, if it appears conscious? And so all those are the, to me, those are the, the most important unanswered scientific question by far that nobody knows the answer to is what is conscious? What is it? Like, how is it that this self-awareness arises from the substrate that is your brain and nervous system? Like, there's no, there's no obvious evolutionary advantage to that. There's no evolutionary reason for it. It's totally and completely miraculous. And like nobody is even close. There's been people that have proposed different answers, but nobody's close to it. But what if you, instead of having the meat in your head, what if you were to get silicon and arrange it in a certain array of some sort? Would it suddenly at some point with a certain amount of memory and a certain amount of processing power, got to have memory to have consciousness. That's pretty clear. Will it spontaneously be conscious? And if it is, what happens then? So I, I think from a philosophical and a legal standpoint, the question of AI, the question of what we're going to do about it is beyond profound. Just to very quickly, in response to what you said, you know, last week the the show hosted Mark Sagar, who is making a case that AI needs to be embodied if there's any chance of it being conscious in the way that we think of consciousness. And my response to the question of the most important scientific question we have to ask is, what is consciousness? Is that perhaps it's not a scientific question, although I think that there are scientific components to that question. For example, what Mark Sagar would say and what I've said for a very long time is that there's no there's no consciousness per se without a form of embodied biological consciousness. Not because I'm insisting on some sort of supremacy of human or biological components to consciousness, but because most of what we think or what most of what we think that we think is inextricable from the body that we live in. I mean, anybody who has a disability knows that what you think and the way your body moves through the world and therefore how your mind thinks about navigating that environment, adapting to that environment is inextricably tied to whether you're able to move through that environment rapidly. I've had four knee surgeries. <laughs> this is something that I think about quite a bit. 
But you don't need to go as far as somebody who has a, a maybe abnormal number of knee surgeries to get to this point. My guess is that most of our listeners, I know I've had this experience, have had the experience of falling in love with somebody. It's not a rational, conscious thought. It's not a thought that you would have in extricable from the way that your body feels around another human being, right? There's no, there's no uh, way that uh, as a biologically female human being, the way that I think is not tied to things like hormones coursing through my body and the way that that changes approximately once a month, right? So I think that most of us have had the experience of innately knowing that biology embodiment is tied to how we think. And for me, the idea that artificial intelligence is intelligence is questionable. That it is magical, that it is philosophical, that it asks us philosophical questions about what it is to be human is um, intuitive to me. That it is changing what it means to be human is intuitive to me as well. The, the philosophy that you're talking about, which we might roughly call cybernetics, describes the way that our consciousness is changed as the technological objects that we interact with themselves change. So for example, with ChatGPT, our understanding of how language works, what knowledge is, the way that ChatGPT talks to us will then change the way that we talk to it, yeah. which will then become a feedback loop that will change the way that it talks to us, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Ad nauseum. That's right. That's right. That's what I'm but, saying. But yeah, I think exactly. that this is in a certain sense different from the legal questions that we might ask, which are not necessarily tied to those philosophical questions, I think, as much as they are tied to the financial questions um, around that structure, because it's not intuitive to me that AI needs to develop in a certain way. There are many questions, I think, that chat GPT as a kind of proper noun for you know generative AI or uh, large language models that are solving that I think are breathtaking. For example, identifying certain biological compounds uh, by way of searching through databases or being able to write code swiftly and precisely in ways that would take human beings a very long time or being able to generate a first draft, right? Those I think are remarkable things, but I'm not sure that, for example, the United States has a labor shortage when it comes to writers that ChatGPT is solving. I'm not sure that the decision to create a large language model that would swiftly and with a ma mastermind of a mimicry be able to imitate human speech was a decision that was made because it added something valuable to society. It was a decision that was made, I think, primarily because it would be a valuable commercial technology, right? So when we're talking about regulating technology, I wonder if you could explicate a little bit more how regulation actually will serve to, or if we want to be more precise about it, rules, rules. will help to push us <laughs> in the decision of technologies that actually serve human values and complement these questions you're asking about what it means to be human. So, uh, by the way, something I've found extremely interesting is you're right. Uh, these large language models have shown some abilities to do some things scientifically and otherwise that we did not predict that are remarkable. But you know what? They're terrible at basic arithmetic and math, which is funny. Uh, like they don't do math or re. I mean, you could literally ask them, you know, what's 162 divided by 123? And it, uh, there's no telling what's going to come out. So, uh, and, and, you know, to your point on embodied intelligence. So that's the notion that uh, consciousness can't really arise without it being like seated inside something that's getting some inputs. And what and I think there's a lot to that. I actually think that's probably true. 
the, the so it's like the brain in the vat problem. Would a brain in the vat would no input ever become conscious? And I don't think it would. I think it would need some inputs, but I don't think the input necessarily needs to be human eyes or human tongue or human fingers. Like you can put, you can embody an intelligence using different input sources. But but to your to your broader question, what is when we talk about the law? And when we talk about writing laws, what are we really talking about? What we're really talking about is a deeply philosophical look at the ethics and the morality and how we're going to relate to each other and other people. So, for example, if we say we're going to throw you in jail for three times as long if you have crack cocaine instead of powdered cocaine, that is a moral and ethical decision. We're, we're, what we're saying is we think as a society, that that's more dangerous. Now, what was really happening is minority communities were using crack cocaine and rich white people like me were using powdered cocaine. I wasn't using cocaine, but I know a lot of people that were. And so uh, we were putting, it was a good way to control minority populations. And put so, but my point is, is, is every time we pass a law, what we're expressing, what we've, what our ethics is a, as a country, we're, or, or wherever the law is passed. So, for example, if it's a law in California and we pass it, we're, we're saying as Californians, this is our ethics and this is our morality. So when we talk about regulating or putting rules on AI or the social media company, uh, there, there's a narrative. You know, you're talking about these huge narratives that we have. The whole idea that, you, oh, too much regulation. Oh, we can't put rules on corporations. Oh, uh, they're going to go bankrupt. They're going to fire a bunch of employees. Oh, if you raise the minimum wage, we're going to have to let go of all the employees. Oh, really? I didn't know that. You mean the CEO that was making a hundred million dollars can't take a tiny little pay cut and pay all his employees just a little bit extra? That that couldn't happen. Like so, that narrative's not told. And so you got to be careful when you're talking about rules and regulations in this country because that immediately triggers things in people's minds that are not positive. So in my view, the way you have to come at it is you have to come at it in a way that people will appreciate why it's good for their own self-interest. So, and that's why I think it's kind of positive that, for example, Florida is starting to try to rein in a little bit of the technology excesses. So I don't think anybody thinks, Maybe there's some people that think this, but I don't think anybody thinks that Facebook should display child pornography. I, I mean, I don't know anybody that thinks that. I don't, I don't think Facebook disagrees with that. That is censorship in a way. But we're, what we're saying is as a society, we think it's so important not to do that, that we're okay with a little bit of censorship. Like we're okay with telling people you can't do whatever you want. It's the same thing with violence. If somebody's hurting somebody else, you know, we have laws against that because we live in a society where we have to have rules that govern our behavior between each other. And the, and the, and the thing is, Deb, the technology companies have gotten away with being completely and totally unregula unregulated for 30 years. I mean, they have, they have got so many special protections. It is, they have more, Facebook has more special protections than you and I do as individuals by a long shot. And so I, t I tell you what, here's another good concrete example. There's been a lot of talk about kicking people off of social media. Like this is violating people's free speech. Donald Trump got kicked off of Twitter. That's violating his free speech. 
Anybody that says that's violating anybody's free speech doesn't know a damn thing about the First Amendment. The only thing the First Amendment prohibits is the government preemptively telling you what you can and can't say. As long as I've been alive, private companies can tell you what, I mean, like I can kick you out of my private company anytime I want. That's the whole point. But here's, here's where we're having problems, Deb, is in order to fix the problem with Twitter kicking people off because they don't agree with their opinions, we would have to say that Twitter is a quasi public square or it's a quasi utility basically. And there are certain people that just can't say, they just don't want to say that. I think, I, I think Facebook and Twitter are utilities at this point. I think they have so much power that we should rein them in. And I think if they participate in conduct that we as a country disagree with, we should be able to sue them. And I don't, I don't think that's extreme. <laughs> and I, and I frankly think most people probably agree with me. That the problem is like Facebook can literally create feeds and everybody's feed right now that would argue against that. And like literally millions of people would be persuaded to do things against their own self-interest. So, you know, that, that's something we got to be cognizant of as well. I mean, putting aside the technology companies and, and the way that they may manipulate legal directives in certain ways that best benefit their bottom line, I, I come out of a background in human rights and I come out of that background in human rights with a great appreciation and a great sense of honor at the way that you talk about the legal code as what one very famous thinker, Gandhi, once called the codification of ethics. And I think that that's right on an ideal level, in an ideal world. And then there is what law actually tends to be, which is the codification of prior decisions yeah. and the further enunciation of, of case laws, right, or established case laws. Or power. And I guess as we're closing yeah. up, I wanted to bring us back to your Somali pirate example and, and think about piracy a little bit more and then think about how... In this non-ideal understanding of, of law, and rather, I think, a, a practical unfolding of law, which is to say that legal decisions and the structure of legal perpetuity oftentimes follows precedent as much as it does uh, have the kind of uh, future-oriented idealism attached to it. I'm wondering about the role of former case laws established already and the way that those legal judgments oftentimes were established prior to the advent of digital technologies. I'm thinking, for example, of copyright law, which applies very well to objects at which it was originally intended to consider. Books, for example, may be less comprehensively equipped to uh, adjudicate our current moment of GAI content or databases. And the question of piracy really made me think of that because if I go online and I search for piracy, I'll get an entry from the Merriam and Webster dictionary defining the term as, and I'll quote what I found when I Googled this, the practice of attacking and robbing ships at sea. But every single website after the Merriam and Webster definition will define piracy as not the practice of attacking and robbing ships at sea, but rather, and I'll quote here, the unauthorized duplication of copyrighted content that is then sold at a substantially lower price in the gray market, especially in today's context where access to technology has meant that over the years, the practice has become more rampant. The larger question is here, 
how well do these older legal forms that explicate terms and provide context and, and judgments that we're still using today to think about our digital technologies in a radically different environment hold up to really providing that second sense of law, which is not established case law as the means by which to adjudicate current events, but rather the ethical core that you're trying to enunciate at the center of what law is intended to do? Yeah, a, a great, great question. And, you know, I, I love that Gandhi quote, by the way, because I, I think it's, as, you know, when I look at the Constitution, the Constitution is the embodiment of the beliefs of a certain group of individuals during a certain time frame that had lived through a certain thing. And we act like it's the Holy Bible or the Torah or the Korean. I mean, all it is is a document written by some very smart people 300 years ago. And the idea that they would be able to predict everything that could happen from a technological standpoint is utterly absurd. That originalism, there's a theory of judicial interpretation called textualism. There's another one called originalism. Both of them are utter frauds. Here's why. Textualism is the idea that words have fixed meanings that never change. Any linguist that you talk to will tell you that is abs. And any 15-year-old will tell you that that's not true. We all know that words have different meanings depending on the context, depending on when they're used, how they're used, the purpose of them being used, who's using them. Originalism is the idea, Deb, that you should go back and look at what were the what was Thomas Jefferson or James Madison thinking when they were writing this? And let's try to get inside their head and see what they meant by that. And so we've got this whole school of interpretation of our laws that thinks that's how we should do things. And it's utterly preposterous. And you know how I know it's utterly preposterous? Because the people that wrote the Constitution specifically wrote in provisions that told us that they knew they didn't know everything. Like, they didn't try to, they didn't claim to know everything. They also didn't use, like, super specific words around the ethical concepts of, like, free speech and free expression and no quartering soldiers in people's eyes. They used very broad words. Why did they use those broad words? Because it's a philosophical ethical. And you know how I know that? Because there's other sections of the Constitution which are very, very, very specific. You got to be a certain age to be president, uh, X amount of senators, stuff like that. So if they wanted to be super specific about it, they could. And I don't know what the solution to this. Maybe one of your listeners will come up with a good solution. The problem with law vis-a-vis technology, or at least one problem, is technology moves fast, law moves slow. And so sometimes things move so quickly. For for example, when Microsoft got uh, sued by the government for antitrust, they were absolutely guilty. Everybody knew they were guilty. You know, they, the narrative they were selling was uh, innovation, innovation, innovation. They didn't innovate jack shit, and everybody knows it. They purchased or bought or sold or ran out of business, most of the companies. Great business. Again, I'm not saying anything about the business, but the technology wasn't that good. It still is. But And, and they were found guilty uh, of monopolistic behavior, but it, was, it took 10 years to do it. I mean, like, and, you know, the technologists are smart enough to know that they can use that delay and that lag to their favor. The law needs to be more responsive and it needs to move faster while still being deliberative. And I worry a little bit about keeping up with what's coming. I mean, the second you have, there's a lot of people that think 
the second we have artificial general intelligence, there'll be a there'll be an intelligence explosion. Some people even think there'll be a singularity, like Ray, Ray Kurzweil. It'll happen so fast it'll make your head spin. I actually believe that. Like I, you know, I look at these chess computers. The second a chess computer started beating Gary Kasparov, it was over, and it's over with for the rest of history. Same thing with Go. Like we'll never beat them again. So it's not like they get gradually smarter. They get to a point where they they're dumb one second, and all of a sudden they beat every human being on the planet. And that happens so quickly that it's hard for the law to react to that. So one way maybe you deal with that is you have people that are smarter writing these laws. Like it would be helpful if people writing the laws actually knew what the blockchain was. It would be helpful if they knew the difference between artificial general intelligence and artificial intelligence. It would be helpful if they knew what a large language model, what, like things like that, it would be helpful. But you know whose responsibility that is? That's our responsibility. And if we keep electing idiots and imbeciles to write laws for us, then we're kind of getting what we're asking for. And so I think as a citizenry, we have to take more responsibility for the people we're putting in office to write these laws for us because if it's all about the letter you have next to your name, or if it's all about whether a little short high school graduate like Sean Hannity thinks about you, then we're screwed. And we, we've just got to, we've got to get past these, you know, left wing and right wing narratives that are all concocted and made up to enrich certain people. And we've got to start saying, who are the, who are the, who are the smart people? Who are the really good people? You know, a good friend of mine was a Republican candidate for president this year, he could not get on the debate stage. He spent 10 years as an undercover CIA agent. He's a computer scientist. He served in the House of Representatives three times. He's a China expert. He's by far the most qualified, and he can't even get on the, on the debate stage. I mean, what does that say about us as a citizenry? So we have to take some responsibility ourselves, and we have to start saying, you know, I mean, right now it's like, this guy's my guy, no matter. I don't care what he says or what he does. I hate the other guy. I'm voting for this guy. We we got to get past that. We got to get smarter. We got to get more mature. We got to stop acting like children. We got to start acting like adults because there are more important issues than than whether some particular actor is advertising Bud Light or where people go to the bathroom. Like there there are so much more important. Like we have existential problems right now we have issues that could cause the end of humanity i mean like look how we dealt with the covid pandemic that's frightening like that's frightening deb like what happens when the next pandemic comes and the thing kills 10 percent of the people it infects. i mean i think we have time for one final question and i'm glad you've given me some comments to provide the context for what i'd like to ask you uh, to close out our conversation what would you want to tell folks who are considering going into law at the intersection of law and tech in particular? Maybe folks who are one day thinking of getting on that debate stage, um, becoming legislators uh, in their own right. What would you want them to know or think about, understand, be aware of, be trained in or care about? I think the most important thing about being a lawyer is you like to read, write, and think. Like that's basically what lawyers do. And so if you're somebody that likes to read a lot, you'll love, I mean, I'm a huge reader. I've been my whole life. I love, I liked reading the cases. I enjoyed it because there's so much philosophy, you know, like one day I'd be reading a case about a piracy. The next day I'd be reading a case about a helicopter crash. The next day I'd be reading a case about a corporate merger and 
So the other thing that's great about the law is if you have a tendency to get bored, you never really get bored. You're always looking at different things. And then the last thing I'll say about a career in the law is my personal view is that you have an obligation to the public at large and having a law license gives you a tremendous amount of power, but it also gives you a tremendous amount of responsibility. And I think we have an obligation as lawyers to use our responsibility for people that might not otherwise be able to do it. So Exxon will be able to afford all lawyers at once forever. You don't need to go work for Exxon. Go help the people in your community. Even if you're working for a big firm and you're representing Exxon and you're during the day, you need to get out there and, and go help the single mom who's trying to get away from the abusive husband. Or go into your community and see if you can't join the school board. Maybe have some of these school board members say, hey, I've got to, you want to ban all these books? I got a great book I think you should read called Fahrenheit 451. And by the way, in case you're not smart enough to realize, this book is about you. <laughs> and so my point is, is like, get out there and try to make the world a, like my personal operating philosophy is is I want the world I, when I leave I want the world to be just a tiny infinitesimal bit better than it was when I first came here like that that would make me if I felt like just made it things just a tiny bit better I would feel I'd be lying on my bed, deathbed going you know I, I think I did I think I did a good job so Anyway, I think the law, if you're going into it for money, you're going to hate it. It needs to, There needs to be a little bit bigger calling than that. And the great thing about the law is you get a law license, you want to go help some people, you can do it. I think that those are great words to end on. And maybe I'm going to go get my law degree after this conversation. Brian, thank you very much. <laughs> really love this conversation. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Deb. Great time.